Hey everyone, I'm Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate. This is a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community. Today's guest is Chef Eli Culp. This episode is made possible with the help of our friends at Wickles Pickles. Wickles is a family-run business and their pickles are made using a 90-year-old family recipe and made proudly in Alabama. Wickles Pickles is actually a fairly new company and they've just been keeping these pickles from us. They've been hiding them and keeping them a secret, at least the recipe is a secret, until they decided to make them readily available to the masses. So they have two different styles. They have the original Wicked Brine and they have a Dirty Dill Brine. They do have other products too, such as relishes and whatnot that I'm going to get into later in the season because they are so delicious. I originally heard about Wickles from Rachel Ray. She was adamant about using the relish in a burger sauce that she makes. So here's what I also love about Wickles Pickles. Wickles believes in giving back to their community through donating food and other resources. They support various organizations, including food banks and community food programs, as well as disaster relief efforts. To learn more about Wickles Pickles and their whole line of products, please visit WicklesPickles.com and follow them on social media at Wickles Pickles. Wickles, we thank you. Today's guest is a chef, podcast host, father, and he's a true leader in the culinary community. Eli Culp has worked in some of the best restaurants in New York City before moving to Philadelphia in 2012. This is where I first came across his food. He helped relaunch one of Philly's most iconic eateries called Fork Restaurant. It received rave reviews across the board. He won Best New Chef. They since opened four more restaurants, including High Street on Hudson in New York City. Eli unfortunately was in the tragic Amtrak crash in 2015, which has since left him paralyzed. He continues to work with the company's chefs as part of High Street Hospitality Group in Philadelphia. He's also working on a new venture called Impact Hospitality Group, which will focus on how food and hospitality can be a positive change agent in today's society and social climate. He was recently named one of the most influential chefs of the past decade by the Philadelphia Inquirer, and he's the host of the Chef Radio podcast, which I encourage you all to check out. Eli is a huge advocate for the environment, for sustainability and agriculture. He gets really deep into that. We'll provide some links at the end of the interview where you can find some of the organizations that he talks about. So before we get going, we do have some awesome merch for you all, which you can find a link to in your podcast player or at beyondtheplatemerch.com. We have those super soft tees and hoodies and some different styles of hats and beanies. So check those out. And please enjoy this episode as we go beyond the plate with Chef Eli Cole. All right, Chef, I want to do a quick audio test to adjust my levels. Can you name 10 soups for me while I do that? 10 soups? All right. Uh, let's see. Chili. I had that yesterday. Um, is that the soup? I don't really know. Uh, of course, we got our uh, chicken noodle, beef, beef, whatever. Uh, now you got me on that. I, I'm never good at these situations where you're like, they rattle off. Like 10, 10 beer uh, labels, right? You know, you know them, but you're always stuck. But All good. Thank you. Yeah. I got to say, man, some of my best meals uh, in Philly were early on when I started going. I started going multiple times a year when I would be out there for work and we would do QVC. And, you know, you were at Fork at the time and these, those and, and High Street. And those were some of my best meals, I got to say. And I was looking up. I used to write down everything I had when I traveled. And I, and I found, I think, the first time I went, uh, to Fork, and I, I wrote down, I was like, went to Fork, had the bay scallops with pickled beets and parsley pesto, steamer clam with horseradish, bread plate of bialy with grass-infused cream cheese, carrot dipped in butter with soil made out of cocoa nib, lemon zest, sesame, and anchovy, crispy chicken nuggets with hot mustard sauce, <laughs> scratchy Italian crostini with pickled eggplant and charred octopus agrodolce with potatoes. And I was like, that's a lot of freaking food. And I feel like I went somewhere before or after. I used to just like yeah, eat my right, way through there. Right, yeah. That stuff it brings back incredible. some memories. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. So, but let's start, let's start earlier on. Where, where did you grow up? I grew up in a town in Washington State called Mossy Rock, Washington. It is uh, just maybe a little bit larger than a village. There's, there's about 500 people that live there. 
uh, around the outskirts around there, I think all in all, there's probably about 1,500 people. Like it's a very rural town and Monster Rock kind of being the center hub, that's where the school system is. And I grew up about six miles outside of Monster Rock. Uh, there's a giant lake, uh, it's a 23 mile uh, long lake uh, called Rife Lake. I grew up right there. The woods, the that was our playground. My brother and I, we would just go and <laughs> we'd go all day out in the woods, you know, if we weren't in school or whatever. And whenever it was time to come home, my dad had a had a hollowed out bullhorn uh, about, uh, I don't know, probably like 18 inches long. And he would blow this horn. And it was loud enough because we were like, you know, middle of nowhere. There's only a couple houses on our on our road. And we'd hear that horn and we'd come home for dinner. You know, we'd be like, all right, time to go. Like, or if he just needed us to come back to the house, he'd just blow this bullhorn and we'd come back. So I grew up in, in, in real, true rural America, even though Washington State being a kind of a liberal stronghold when it comes to voting, the population, the largest amount of the population is in the, in the urban areas. I grew up in a very, like I'd say, red part of, of America. You know, everybody who, like when I was growing up, most of the men in that area worked in the timber industry, including my dad. He was a lumberjack uh, for many years growing up. And then as the timber industry uh, started to, uh, you know, go under some uh, serious pressure in the 90s, you know, he began kind of just doing like odd jobs around the community and, and they still live there. They still live on the lake and it's a great place to go back every year. I, I definitely appreciated, you know, what I learned growing up there. And that's where I actually started cooking. There was a woman who who had moved with her husband into Mossy Rock from uh, one of the larger cities. I think she came from like Longview, Washington, which is kind of closer to Portland. And she had this dream of opening this little cafe in a small town. And they found this building that was right in the heart of Mossy Rock. And Mossy Rock is only a half mile by a half mile. Like it's not, a, it's, it's literally two roads and some little neighborhood roads. So there's, it's really not much there. You can look it up on Google Maps. It's, you'll get a good good chuckle out of it. I think the school grounds itself makes up about a third of the whole town. So this lady uh, and her husband moved there and they opened, they took over this building and they opened this place called the Irish Rose Cafe. And they had a little pizza place on the back end of the building called La Rosa Pizza. So the pizza on the takeout and they had more of a cafe. And this was in 1992. And I was just going to my freshman year my dad said, you know, you should get a summer job. This place is opening. Maybe they have, you know, be a dishwasher or whatever. So, you know, long story short, a lot of chefs, you know, you hear, you hear the 14 year old story a lot, you know, as you kind of just come into that place where you're about ready to start working or earn some money. And yeah, I stayed there all through high school. And, and by the time I left high school, I knew what I was doing. That's amazing. But earlier than that, were you into food? Like what, what was your, what was the dinner tape? What was like family dinner like at your house? Family dinner was always really good as far as what I knew then. Looking back, it was pretty minimal. You know, I, we grew up, I wouldn't say we were poor. We always had what we needed, but my parents were, they landed there. They were, they essentially were driving their Volkswagen bus around the country as like two hippies. And they found, they drove through this town of Mossy Rock saw a real estate listing for some property at the end of this old dirt road. And, you know, they bought it and it had a single wide trailer. Uh, I grew up in a trailer, you know, this trailer is probably looking back, it's probably 800 square feet. My dad put an addition on it for our bedroom. And, you know, so food for me um, was very simple. You know, it was probably the same six to eight things that my mom would make on a consistent basis. Very American food. Even though she was from Holland, she didn't really learn how to um, cook much. And so it was like, I could name it. It was like sweet and sour meatballs, you know, with canned, tomato, uh, canned pineapple, green peppers. You know, there was sauerkraut, sausage, and mashed potatoes. She eventually started making these chicken enchiladas with cream and mushroom soup. She found a recipe on the back of a box. Tacos, like American style tacos, hard tacos, uh, you know, just real s sort of, you know, kind of what was being cooked around the country in the, in the, you know, 80s and early 90s. Wow. What was the first thing you, did you ever cook as a kid or what was the first thing you ever cooked? No, never did. So first thing I ever cooked, it was, it probably would have been 1992. 
uh, shortly after I started every, every year in Mossy Rock, we have, uh, I think it's still there. Basically it's like an old car show that comes to the town and, uh, it's the busiest weekend of the year. There's like a big, like, like a big dance that happens in the middle of the town and, you know, all the cars and, you know, it's kind of like the center of the County for that, for that weekend. And it was really busy. I'd been, you know, as a dishwasher and kind of like a bus boy. And then uh, I remember the owner asked me to start, you know, cooking something. And I remember it very clearly. It was the chicken teriyaki salad. So, you know, you, we cooked basically cut up chicken breast, uh, soy sauce, peanuts, celery cut on a bias. Uh, so really, you know, real, real fancy. And, you know, basically just, you know, cook the, cook the chicken in this sweet and soy sauce and with peanuts and celery. And that was a topping that would go on essentially a salad, like a bed of romaine. And that was the first thing I remember cooking. And I remember, I think I started in the morning. I was there until probably like 9 PM, a little after 9 PM. And I remember my, uh, my dad walking in and said, son, it's getting late. You got to go. He, like, he was, you know, he's like worried that I was going to be there until 11 PM or something, uh, you know, as a, as a 14 year old. And I remember him coming in there and saying, it's time to go. But that random thing is the first, that random item or dish. That was the first thing that, that really I was enjoying cooking. I never cooked at home. Like that was never like a thing. I never like helped out in the kitchen. It was, you know, we, we ate for sustenance and, you know, that's about it. And, you know, not really for flavor, not really for the, the big dinner other than, you know, holidays and whatnot when the family's around. But even then, everything's out of a can. Nothing was fresh. You know, it was sort of traditional American fare back then. But that, the, the teriyaki chicken salad was the, the first foray into, into me being at a stove and cooking in a commercial kitchen. Got it. In a little bit, I want to get into the train accident can we can we talk a little bit about that yeah of course okay Okay, cool but let's go to like early like 2014 early 2015 pre-accident what three words would you use or would you have used to describe yourself then uh driven definitely one uh passionate and i would say a little let's just say i started to have a it's not egotistical, but I begin to feel myself a little bit too much. Uh, I don't know the word you would say, but I remember, you know, looking back and, you know, I felt, I felt invincible. You know what I mean? Like those, that's what it was. I felt invincible. So I'd say, yeah, I'd say um, driven, passionate, and that feeling of invincibility that I was, I was putting all the work, all the learning that I had done over the past you know, 15 years or so, I was starting to develop my own language with food. And that's what I tell people. That's when you know you're a chef. The title, forget the title. Like, you know, everybody, there's, by the time people are 25 nowadays, they're considered a chef uh, as long as they can, you know, put together, you know, something that they learned off Instagram. So uh, the true, I think, differentiating fact uh, or skill that really, to terms of chef is when they begin the, they create their own food language. And, you know, that's a culmination of all the, all the influences that you've had up to that point. And when you start to, you know, it's almost like writing a, a book that's unique to you and your experiences, but you're doing that through a menu and through the food and you're developing that point of view. And once you have that point of view, that's really the thing that will drive you and sort of be your guiding light. That's why I try to tell young chefs is that once you can develop a point of view with your food, like you're, you're there. Like that's when you know you're there. I mean, it's easy to kind of copy. I mean, we're all copying to some degree, right? Nothing is new. Nothing, nothing, no food is new. Like it's all been done in a certain way. It's just putting that little twist, uh, that little bit of difference that, that can, uh, make people kind of say, okay, I remember that food because of not just the flavor, not just the environment that you're in the, in the restaurant, but because it, it took me somewhere, you know, it took me somewhere. It, it transported me to a place where, you know, I'll never forget that dish. You know, that's, that's when I felt, um, that's, that's what I was at that point, you know, feeling that sort of, that everything I was doing was working. You're in a flow state, you know? Yeah. So can you bullet out, like if you had a bullet 
like do bullet points of highlights of your uh, chef or culinary career. Can you can you just bullet that out for the listener so they know? So in 2005, uh, I finished culinary school and you know bounced around New York City through. I think it was BLT Fish, Oceana. And then we did um, a small restaurant on the Upper East Side called Jovia, just as a line cook. Uh, went to Del Posto uh, with Mark Ladner and Mario Carbone. And that's where I really started to uh, feel attached to a cuisine, uh, which is, you know, the Italian cuisine. It's not the, the fact that it's Italian because I'm not Italian. I, I don't, there's not an ounce of Italian in me, but it's really about the narrative that Italian food uh, runs through and you know that sort of um uh just the way they approach food their ideals behind it you know don't do too much to it uh make it super flavorful and it's really about the the idea of eating together and creating food that brings people together so del posto was uh, a really true defining um restaurant for me after that after spending about three years there i went on and bounced around um as like chef de cuisine of a couple of places in New York. Uh, the last place was Casa Lever uh, in Midtown, which I spent a year there with some Italians. It was like three chefs in the kitchen. Uh, we all had our station that we, it was like all sous chefs with no real chef. And, you know, so that was an interesting experiment. You know, definitely learned a little bit, but no one ever needs to work in Midtown. Like it's just not a, it's not a great place to work. It's, you know, it's, it's like the, uh, the empty soul of Manhattan, you know, Midtown, you know, people are not there to uh, be uh, impressed by food. They're there to impress each other. You know, that's, that's the way it is. Then uh, Rich Teresi and Mario Carbone, who I knew both of them from working at uh, Del Posto. And then Rich actually worked as a cook as he was buying time for Teresi to open at La Fonda del Sol, which is where um, was in Grand Central Station as a chef de cuisine there. So, you know, knowing Rich and Mario both, uh, they opened up Teresi Italian Specialties in Olita on Mulberry Street, which if, you know, people are not familiar with it, uh, became the, the talk of the town for New York City uh, in 2010, I guess it was. And they, um, you know, they opened up this little tiny uh, Italian sandwich shop and at night, you know, during the day and then at nighttime, they would be serving more or less family style food. Um, you know, your antipasti, you choose your pasta. No, antipasta, everybody gets the same pasta. Then you choose between meat or fish. Uh, no vegetarian. If, if you were vegetarian, there were no substitutes. It was very like yes or no, take it or leave it food. That was a special spot. It was very special. It was very special. I was so fortunate to work there. I spent two years with them as, and you know, as, as they started to expand, uh, once they got the reviews that they got and, Remember, um, uh, New York Magazine gave them, uh, you know, four out of four stars. And, you know, it was no reservations. It was kind of like one of the first places to do that. You stand in line. It was very democratic. Whoever got there earliest can put their name down. But there'd be a line forming at, you know, 3 p.m. Uh, at points on the weekends, especially, that would wrap around the block. And, you know, you could literally count down the line. Okay, we have, we can, we can do a maximum of 75 covers tonight. That's three turns. You know, the first 75 people, you're in, um, you know, the reservation. So it was it was one of those sort of magical moments where you knew you're a part of something special. And even though it was so small, it was, you know, it was such an amazing place because what happened was, you know, it became so popular and all of a sudden, you know, it's like, not that it's unique to this restaurant in New York, but not only were you popular, but then, you know, the celebrities that would come in there and it's a little shoebox. Like it was, it's like the size of a bedroom upstairs, like a large bedroom. It was 900 square feet, the whole place. And we had to cook downstairs in the basement. So tiny little place. And before you know it, Paul McCartney's there and, you know, Jay-Z and Beyonce's there. And, you know, you know, Kobe Bryant came in and, LeBron James and Dwayne Wade after they won the championship. And it just became this crazy little place that people were just loving, you know, and it became this, this interesting dynamic between the food we were cooking and then these people who uh, we were cooking like high level food. I mean, there was myself, Rich and Mario 
um, all accomplished chefs in this tiny little restaurant cooking together. And we love each other. Like we're brothers. Like it was not like a competition or anything, you know? So it was really just such an amazing place to be. And then we ended up, uh, after we got, we, we, we evolved into this, this tasty mini restaurant, we were doing 23 courses and it was everything about every single bite that you had along the way was a, was some tied in New York city. And we, what Rich and Mario did brilliantly was said, okay, you know what? We're Italian Americans. We're going to cook Italian food, but we're going to do it our way. We're going to do it little twists, little turns, uh, and we're going to make we're going to, we're going to essentially incorporate the culture of New York City into the food. So whether it was you know Mario made the um, I remember us working on it, you know the one that stands out to a lot of people is the uh, Jamaican beef patty ragu with cavatelli. So it's a cavatelli pasta, but we make the Jamaican beef ragu filling, you know, and with the habaneros and everything and the grated pecorino cheese over it, you know, and then we, you know, we did, you know, we'd serve things in old vintage ashtrays that look like cigarettes. And, you know, it had been done, like, you know, Heston Blumenthal was doing stuff like that. We'd go to Rich's house in the morning, 8 a.m., three days a week, four days a week, and sit there and just roll through cookbooks and inspiration. And there'd be five or six of us in the room just bouncing ideas off. And, you know, we were laughing and joking. We'd come up with the stupidest things, but sometimes they'd work, you know. And, you know, we'd just be busting each other's balls, like, shut up, that would never work. You're an idiot, you know. It was just like a good time, you know, and we trusted each other. We loved each other. And it was, it was a really, a really nice thing. And, you know, as they were expanding, they, they started working towards Carbone. And originally I was supposed to be, you know, I was, I was supposed to be running Carbone. And uh, either it was, it was really Mario's restaurant. Um, they wanted me to kind of like, you know, be their, their, um, the guy that would help open it and stabilize it. And then I was going to have my own restaurant within their company. Um, but as, as that started to happen, I, I was realizing that I needed to sort of go off my own and it was no, it was no riff or, you know, it was, it was hugs and, you know, well wishes on the way out. Uh, they understood it. They got it. I started uh, researching places to work and I reached out to a couple of people to help me, you know, maybe connect. And um, a friend of mine connected me with uh, Ellen Yin, who's my partner now in Philadelphia. I'd never been to Philadelphia, never. And you know, we talked on the phone. She impressed me with, you know, what she was willing to uh, do. Fork had been around for uh, 15 years at that time. So it was not a spring chicken. And she really wanted to inject some new energy into Fork. And we had some really great conversations. Um, you know, she she would listen to what kind of the things that I needed, you know, to say, okay, I'm willing to move down here with my family to Philadelphia, but I need to know that, you know, the owner's serious about, you know, doing uh, things the right way and not just a bunch of talk. So after a long back and forth, uh, we finally made the decision to uh, head down to Philadelphia. So that was sort of my eight, nine years in New York and then down to Philly. In 2012. Mm-hmm. 2012. Yeah. Okay. So you're at Fork with at Fork Restaurant which now High Street Hospitality Group. So skip ahead, not long after, um, you're named Best New Chef by Food & Wine Magazine. You got High Street as Best New Restaurant by, with, by Bon Appetit. Mm-hmm. What was your view on accolades? I mean, there, there, it's, it's really nice to be recognized. I will say that one of my goals as a young chef was Food & Wine Best New Chef. That was really something that was important to me. And that the reason why I was kind of fascinated with that, when I was doing my uh, externship from the Culinary Institute in New York City. Where did you do your extern? Uh, Oceana. So uh, that was when uh, a chef named Cornelius Gallagher was there. And Cornelius had just won Food & Wine Best New Chef the year before. So one day, I'm the intern, right? And so he was invited to come back and cook at the... Um, at the following year's uh, presentation in downtown uh, Manhattan. It was at this old bank building. Listen, I never really, I, I just got to New York City. I didn't really know much about it. So he has this other chef friend that, that would come and hang out at the restaurant. I don't really know who he is or where he's from. He's like one of his old uh, buddies from the Bronx. And so we load up, we're doing a, we're doing a, um, a langoustine, a roasted langoustine like dish for the, um, you know, for the people that are there to, you know, I think they had like seven or eight chefs that, that were there cooking. And so we, we do all the prep and we load up the cooler and we get out. You know, his friend's going to drive us down. 
Well, his friend's driving a like little Nissan pickup with a uh, with a canopy on the back, right? So we're in Midtown Manhattan. We're at 53rd Street. And he's like, all right, get in. And I'm right in the back of this pickup. I'm six foot four. So, you know, the we're riding down Manhattan. I'm in this back of this pickup with this giant cooler of, of stuff. And just, I mean, you know, the roads and the streets of Manhattan. I'm just getting banged around like crazy. And they're laughing. They're smoking weed. Like, it's just like, you know, they had a little slider window. So they're like yelling back at me. And I was just like, what the hell is going on? What did I get myself into? Well, I get there and, you know, food and wine, especially back then, it was, they put on such an amazing show, right? And I'm just awestruck by what's going on there. And we're doing these little um, phyllo wrap langostines, like roasted order. And, you know, and in my mind, I'm like, wow, like whatever this is, I want it. Like, like I don't, I, I didn't really know much about it at that point. But I knew that I wanted it, and it really stuck with me. It's like those moments looking back that that really like like are become part of your DNA, you know, and it becomes part of your natural thought process. And that was one of those moments. So, Food and Wine ma- magazine for me, um, Rich and Mario had won it the year prior, you know. So it's you know people that knew that I was coming down to Philadelphia, um, people like Kate Crater and you know um, a lot of the Food and Wine people because they would hang out at at Teresi quite often. Um, Teresa was just kind of like this hub for, you know, activity and, and, and the food world in New York city for a while. So, you know, coming down here and, um, you know, but I wasn't thinking that it wasn't like something that's in my front of my brain every day, you know, it's like, you're just cooking, you're cooking your ass off. You're cooking as hard as you possibly can. And, you know, coming down to Philadelphia, I didn't, I didn't bring a bunch of cooks with me. Like I was hiring people off the street and having to like train them. I told him like this is gonna be, this is gonna be ran like a restaurant in New York City like these, this is like get ready like you're you're signing on to something that's going to be extremely beneficial to you you're gonna learn a ton but you're gonna work your ass off and it's gonna be a grind and I remember begging people to stay begging them to stay you know like don't leave I can't it's like I, I felt like I was on the, my on the verge of like losing it because you know we're we're in the review process and you know people are coming in and the buzz is out but I can't even get staff that that can cook because you know, to be honest, like there's some good cooks in Philadelphia, but not quite the caliber that, you know, I was seeing in New York City at the time. So it was literally training people from the ground up, uh, this new style of cooking and the new, the new thought process. So, you know, once, once I got that call from Dana Cowan, which is out of the blue, I had no idea that it wasn't even on my radar. You know, it was really just sort of, you know, you, you take it in, you're excited, you know, the future is bright, you appreciate it. Um, but you know, the accolades are something that saying, okay, the industry appreciates what you're doing, but it's not the end. Like, you know, don't sit on your, uh, don't sit on your, on your butt and, and think that that's the end because trust me, like how many chefs of, of food and wine magazine over the last two decades, can you really name, you know, it's only a handful, you yeah, know? Yeah. So, so wait, you went from, you went from Washington state to, to CIA in Hyde Park, New York. And then you went to, it sounds like your externship you did in New York city. When you, did you think you were going to go to CIA and, and go back to Washington state or did New York kind of open your eyes? I was, I was too much of a, a, a pussy to like actually go from Seattle to New York city. I was too intimidated by it. I remember reading the, my brother bought me the book, uh, Kitchen Confidential. And that was, that was something that really fascinated me about New York City. But it seemed so like rough and crazy that I just, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to this school. I'm going to like hone my craft a little bit more. Cause in Seattle, like I got away from real cooking. I was working like, I was a, I was a kitchen manager at an Irish pub, you know? So like, and, but I knew I was having a blast, like working there was a great, you know, I mean, in your early twenties working in like a, you know, a bar atmosphere and, you know, having a, you know, having a blast, but I knew that I was not going the direction that I needed to. And I needed to kind of step out of that and say, you know, I need to really commit. I'm 25 years old. I need to commit to this. Otherwise, you know, I'm going to be like mediocre and I didn't want to be mediocre. So that was when I applied went to the uh, CIA and then headed down to New York after. Hey everyone, give us a second. We'll be right back with Eli shortly, but want to give some love to one of our other partners this season, Martin's Famous Potato Rolls. Martin's was founded in the heart of Pennsylvania Dutch country in 1955. They are still the number one branded potato roll in the U.S., 
as I like to say, they can make almost any burger taste better. Want to give a quick and simple shout out to Martin's this week. My wife and I were using some of their dinner potato rolls, you know, the little square ones, they come uncut. They make sliced potato rolls also. I gotta tell you something. If you're having pulled pork and you're not eating it on a Martin's roll, you're doing it wrong. This is like the number one vessel to put. By the way, for most burgers and sandwiches and whatnot, but barbecue pulled pork on a Martin's roll, it's like number one lock. I also happen to slather some of the Wickles Pickles relishes on there too, which also helped up the game. Here's what I also love about Martins. Martins believes in giving back to their community. They support hundreds of charitable organizations such as food banks, after school programs, disaster relief, and others. To learn more about Martins and check out some great recipes, go to potatorolls.com and follow them on all the socials at potatorolls. Martins, we thank you. All right, back to Chef Eli Colt. So things are going well in Philly, winning some accolades, uh, F4 growing, expanding. Things are looking up, planning a restaurant in New York City. And then suddenly your life is changed forever. So what happened on May 12th, 2015? Right. So the I was commuting from New York City at the time to Philadelphia. My wife's job, uh, my wife at the time, her her job was in New York. And originally we had moved down to Philadelphia and we wanted to get closer to her work. Uh, it was stressful for her in Philadelphia. It was, you know, so we agreed, okay, let's go to New York. I'll come down to Philly. It's, you know, it's an hour and 20 minute train ride uh, to Philadelphia. So I was doing a lot of commuting three or four days a week. And on that day specifically, I was I wasn't supposed to be in Philadelphia. I was we were we were beginning to open our work on the construction process for High Street, New York. And the that day specifically, I'd come down to cook for a group of ladies who won this uh, I think it's forty under forty in New York, and I was a part of our forty under forty in Philadelphia. Uh, I was a part of that, so they asked, okay, the women can come together and cook a luncheon for them. So I came down, I cooked a luncheon for them. I, it was I think it was a uh, Tuesday or Wednesday night. I can't remember exactly. And I usually would take the train, the later train, the 1104 train uh, back to New York City if I was working a regular shift. Well, that night I just stayed through service until it died down. Uh, it wasn't a busy night. I was like, okay, I'm going to get out of here a little early. Had, you know, got on the nine o'clock train and about eight minutes into the train ride itself, the driver went into the train engineer, the, the guy driving the train, uh, went into a, a corner at a hundred and something like 108 miles an hour and it's like a 50 mile an hour corner. Uh, train goes off the tracks, uh, massive derailment, you know, catastrophic crash, um, killing uh, eight or nine people. I was in the second car behind the business class. It was a quiet night on the train. Uh, I picked um, the front, uh, the very front seat where they had the double seats that kind of face each other um, so I could stretch my legs out. And, you know, I just got on the train, checking emails, whatever and um, responding uh, to some text messages uh, and that and the train as it was going you know there's there's obviously shutters and stuff on the train that you normally feel but this one in particular was really a hard shutter it took long enough that you realize like something isn't right you don't know how bad it is at that point well the train it's a left-handed corner so the train goes off the track to the right and you know trains don't just go off the track, they flip on their side, especially if they're traveling at double the speed they're supposed to. Apparently the driver of the train was distracted because there was other another incident uh, on the southbound train that and somebody had thrown a stone uh, at, a, at an Amtrak train coming southbound. So apparently he was distracted and he lost track of where he was uh, and the he was accelerating thinking he was entering a straight stretch uh, when he was actually entering a very sharp corner in uh, Port Richmond area of Philadelphia. So I go flying. Um, uh, I remember flying through the air. I was on the left side of the train. It tipped to the right. So it kind of catapulted me across. And I remember in the air thinking, this is it. Um, lights out. Like, you know, you know, the, you have that moment. And it wasn't like my life flashed in front of me. Uh, it was literally like, this is it. That's the only word that went through me. And at that point, I was airborne, and um, my body kind of turned in the air, um, kind of counterclockwise, uh, about uh, forty-five degrees. And at the, and 
my neck struck the the luggage bin uh, above the seats on the right side. And it struck in a way that it immediately crushed my spinal cord uh, between my fourth and fifth vertebrae. And I landed in a heap. Um, it was that fast. It was the, the, the noise that, that kind of went through my body when, I, when my spinal cord broke. I, I, I sort of use the analogy of somebody turning a you know, sound system on a 10 and you know, with an electric guitar and just, just riffing on all the chords at one time. It was like a noise that went through and a shock that went through my body. And that was it. You know, and then a bunch of stuff piled on top of me, the luggage rack uh, and everything. And I just laid there and you know, tried to um, uh, get somebody to hear me. My diaphragm was my diaphragm was wiped out because you know the, the it's a muscle, so I couldn't even really talk. I was like kind of screaming at the top of my lungs, but it was just a faint, uh, a faint scream. Uh, but it was enough to get people to hear me. And then you know after that it was you know getting pulled out and rescued and just you know transported into surgery um, and all that. So yeah, so I'm paralyzed from the chest down. Uh, I do have use of my arms, but I don't have use of my hands. So I can't grab things. So, you know, that is something that is quite important, right? So I don't live 100% dependent, uh, independent life now. I need help with things. So, yeah, life has changed. But five years in, I guess I would say that, you know, you it, it becomes somewhat normalized. You know, you have your good days and bad days, but, you know, you get around in a power wheelchair now. So what does a good day look like for you? A good day is no pain. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's about um, um, nerve pain is a big thing um, and muscle spasticity is a big one. On a bad day, it's very tight, it's painful. Um, it feels like my whole body's on fire and you, know, you have a good day where your body's loose and relaxed and you're like, all right, I'm loving it now. You know, it just makes such a difference. And the... But it's just random. You don't know when you're going to have a day and when you're not going to have a day. So it's, it's for me, it's, you know, I live day to day on that. You know, I don't know what's coming. And as long as I'm staying busy and I'm not thinking about the pain, it kind of does kind of dull it. But, you know, if you focus on it, it's really, it can be really, really uh, debilitating mentally and physically. Yeah. So before you share the story, you know, we talked about, your point of view on accolades and stuff like that, but like what does success look like today? By the way, first, thank you for sharing that story. It's hard for me to ask about it. I don't know if it's hard. I'm sure you're getting used to talking about it or have gotten used to it, but I appreciate you sharing that with us. Yeah, no worries. I, you know, I, I don't mind telling it. It's, it's part of who I am now. You know, it is, my, it is my story and it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, it's, I don't, I don't, I don't love telling it, but it doesn't really bother me. You know, I think it's a, it's a story of catastrophic injury. It's a story of getting back um, figuratively on your feet and, and, you know, getting your life sort of in the right direction and the challenges that it's faced. And, you know, it's a message of resiliency. And I think it's a message of, of, you know, constant improvement because really you're learning everything again. I mean, it's like you're a child, you're learning how to live your life again and, you know, there's a lot more that goes into it than just me getting in a wheelchair and riding around. I mean, there's a lot of things that, you know, health and well-being that, that, that go along with this that an able-bodied person does not have to think about. Yeah. So I'm guessing you went through or are, I don't know, plenty of physical therapy. I know you made your way to the kitchen, obviously, in a different way. Paint that picture for us. What does it look like? Well, as far as physical therapy goes, I, I occasionally still do it, um, but it's not something that's, that's like constant because you know, other than keeping your your muscles healthy through you know, exercise and all that, you know, it's it's sort of just maintaining things. So right now, you know, getting back in the kitchen for me was really about getting that confidence again and figuring out a way that I can still be effective and useful, being a contributor in the kitchen. And I found that I could still do that. You know, but reality is it's not the same. It's not the same. Like trying to tell somebody what to cook and how to cook it is like an artist trying to tell somebody how to paint their art. You know, it's not going to be the same. It'd still be nice. You know, if Van Gogh taught somebody how to paint his style, 
it would probably be pretty cool still, but it's not going to be the same. You know, it might be delicious. It might be, um, it might look nice, but it might be missing the nuances that, that, you know, that, that last five or 10% that take it from good to great. One more question here. We sometimes ask chefs, is there a moment they ever wanted to throw in the towel? Your story gives new meaning to this question. Right. Yeah. For me, it was, you know, there were some dark days for sure. I think, you know, once you come home from therapy and, you know, basically I was in a hospital for five months in a hospital setting doing, you know, recovery work and, and learning, learning how to navigate life uh, with a disability. And I was in Atlanta and I remember coming home and to New York and um, we lived on the Upper East Side at the time, you know, small New York apartment. And after the, the thrill of getting home kind of wore off and sort of the routine set in and just the, the work that you had to do every day to kind of get back on your feet. And then also my marriage was falling apart at the time. And it was just, my life was just a mess. And, you know, no doubt that there were moments where I wanted to throw in the towel and I thought about it. And, and what I mean by that is like throwing the towel in on life because I just, I didn't see a path forward. I wasn't, there was no joy in my life other than my time with my son, you know, and that was, that was becoming stressful and limited a little bit as we separated, you know, if it wasn't for him, I don't know where I'd be today, to be honest. Um, you know, he is without a doubt, you know, the reason why I continue, you know, making sure that I, I keep myself in check. You know, I keep my, you know, there, there's still days where it's, where it feels difficult. I think, you know, so many people uh, are, are already more stressed and more anxious uh, in 2020 with everything going on. You compound that and you think about people with disabilities who are either, you know, more uh, homebound because, you know, there's just, it's just not safe to go out because, you know, you might be a little bit more um, susceptible to uh, getting sick. You know, so there's, there's a lot of things that go into, you know, this year in particular that, that, you know, individuals that live their daily life with disabilities. And you're talking about in the millions of people, you know, uh, across America that, you know, your life is, you know, more difficult than the average person. So, you know, just making sure that your mental health and everything else is kind of in check. Uh, you know, that's really what what's about now. I think back to those days where, you know, I was without a doubt in a, a deep, deep depression, not knowing the path forward, but it's really about, it's a cliche, but, you know, one day to the next, one foot in front of the other. Um, and knowing that, you know, there's, there's people out there to help you. And for me, that's what it was. I had a phenomenal therapist, uh, Angelo Riccobono, who is the head therapist for the spinal cord injury unit at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. And she was really able to paint the picture in a way that, you know, yes, it's going to be hard work, but don't give up. You know, she's, she was somebody who could really sort of help you envision the future and get there and navigate these crises that, that were coming along. So I think, uh, you know, between her and my, um, my son being there and, you know, always never wanting to throw in the towel for him, it was selfish of me, you know, no doubt. Like I was, I was thinking about me in those moments and how bad my life was. Those thoughts would quickly disappear when I would, uh, make sure I reframed my, my, the way I was looking at life and also, you know, look, make sure I had the right perspective. Cause a lot of times it was, you know, I was feeling like crap, you know, I was in pain. It didn't make sense. Why, why this, why me, why me, why me, you know, why did I get on that train? Why did I, you know, take, why, why was I working so hard? You know, why was I, why did I cook that meal for those women that day? Why didn't I just say no? You know, why did I, you know, I signed up for CrossFit. And I, was, I was going home early also. That was another reason why I went home a little early. You know, it was like a 7 a.m. CrossFit uh, session I had. And, um, you know, why did I do that? So you, you kind of, you know, all the whys kind of creep in. And, and But there's really no answer. You know, it is what it is. And, you know, I accept that. And from that point on, once I got past that, and I said, you know what, screw this. I'm, I got to figure this out for my son and myself. And once you get there, then, then it's sort of like a, it's not, it's not a straight up, you know, uh, graph that, you know, you're, it's, it's ups and downs and, 
you know, some, it's like the stock market, you know, it's like some days you're going to have, um, you know, weeks will go by where you feel like shit and there's, um, you feel like there's no hope. And then, you know, um, weeks will go by where you feel like you're making great progress. So yeah, it was, it was really an interesting lesson going through that and looking back how, you know, mental illness is legit, is hard. Um, it, 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 it can kill you inside and out, but finding the, finding the reasons to, you know, really move forward is key. So. Got it. Thank you. So I asked you before what three words you would use to describe yourself. You said passion, you said driven, and then you said invincible. Well, what three words would you use to describe yourself today? Driven, uh, passionate, um, and empathic. Nice. Like it. Want to hit on social impact and giving back for sure. And I, I, I've been listening to your podcast, which I want to hit on, which is fantastic. And I urge all listeners to listen to it. We'll get to that in a sec. But uh, with all our guests, as I like to say, beyond the plate, they all give back in different ways. And I knew that and, uh, to an extent. And that's one of the main reasons I wanted to start this podcast was because of how giving you all are. And obviously, given today's state of the world, um, there's even more ways chefs are stepping up and giving back even while they're losing a lot, which is crazy to me. Would you say giving back has a new meaning to you? Yeah, you know, for me, you know, coming up and, you know, I think all, a lot of chefs go through this, right? So you're in your late 20s, early 30s, you're in your moment, you're in your flow state, you're doing great things, you know, you're getting all the accolades and everybody coming to the restaurant that loves your food and you're the hot, you know, you're the hot shit in town, but then you age out of that, you know, then it, after that, the real work starts. Like that's easy. That's, that's easy motivation, right? You're seeing people come in and it's like instant gratification. You're seeing people post things on Instagram, but the real work starts after all that happens. And I think that's where a lot of chefs can kind of get lost where it's, it's hard to keep that momentum going. And I think often we, you know, we think, okay, what's the next restaurant, right? And what's the next restaurant after that? Because that's what keeps you going, like the openings, right? Like that's sort of the energy, the, the adrenaline that you're looking for. And, you know, this day and age, like restaurants, you know, the margins are thin. So one restaurant might not pay the bills for you and your family. You might need two or three. And, you know, what happens with that? You know, more money, more problems. And your life can quickly be uh, overtaken by, you know, you become a slave to your own uh, desires. So this day and age with, um, you know, ev what everybody's dealing with, as far as, you know, COVID and, you know, social distress and poverty and racial issues, chefs as a whole, I think, you know, we've, we've had a voice for a while, more so than ever before. And, you know, I think we, we have to continue using that voice and, and for finding a way that, you know, as you get older, some chefs might choose to stay in the kitchen and just cook. But a lot of chefs, I think, are saying, what can I do besides only work for the dollar? What can I do to have an impact on the communities around uh, us? And uh, last year, I, I started to uh, step out of, uh, step back from, you know, the day-to-day -day of the restaurants. Um, I give my partner some room and, you know, I trust her with everything and started to look at ways that I myself can, you know, put myself in a position to, um, start helping out and giving back. So uh, I did form uh, Impact Hospitality Group. Right now, it's not much. Uh, it's just an idea, but the idea is there. And, you know, I think what ha what happened was, you know, with COVID hitting, everything got kind of pushed back. And right now is not the best time to be looking at um, opening restaurants that are more geared towards social impact. But I think that is the future for me. And, and that's what's going to happen because I feel like we, you know, as a chef and, and somebody who has a uh, restaurant group, my goal is to be an example of what you can do with the influence you have as a chef and that other communities, you know, outside of the 10% of the people that can afford to come into our restaurants in the city, you know, that have that expendable income to drop $60, $70 on a dinner multiple times a week. You know, we need to start looking at, okay, 
how can we take our impact and our influence into communities, uh, you know, inner city communities, communities that are are suffering. It doesn't mean you have to put a restaurant in there, but like, what do you do? Like, are you going in and, and meeting with people and bringing them into your kitchen and training them? There's lots of ways to kind of, you know, make sure that you're thinking outside of the box when, when, you know, your collective influence and I get it. It's, it's hard. A lot of guys might be hearing this and like, shit, like I can't even get like kitchen staff. Like I'm chained to the stove, let alone be able to think outside of it. And I get that. I get that. But without a doubt, you know, when, when those chefs do have time, we're giving creatures by nature. We want to give things. We want to help people. And hospitality is at the core of everything we do. So my goal is to really start to find ways and set examples of how chefs can uh, help within their communities and around their communities, you know, uh, start to make change, you know, b- become change makers. I love that, dude. Well, I, my next thing was I was going to give you a moment to shed light on an organization or a fund during these crazy times in the world. Is there anyone specific you'd like to mention? You know, you just t- talked about this impact group, um, but is there any other organization or fund that you'd like to shed light on? Well, I mean, I, I'm a big supporter of Children International, um, you know, obviously there's, you know, there's a ton of different places out there that you can help, whether it's through donation base or, you know, we do March of Dimes often. We do No Kid Hungry. You know, I think that was another thing that, you know, as I talked to chefs that, you know, listen, we do these fundraisers all the time, these social events, you know, where, you know, you buy your $100 ticket and you walk around an event with wine and beer and, you know, act like you're, everybody thinks they're like, you know, the best dress or whatever. And trust me, nobody likes doing these chefs. We do them because we feel like some sort of obligation, but at the end of the day, like we, we go, we, we stress out, you know, we don't have staff to begin with, but somehow we manage it. We're sitting in front of the house people to like, you know, make cook your food and serve because you don't have, you don't have anybody in the kitchen. If you send anybody out uh, to cook service that night. So they're very stressful. And I think for me as a chef, I want things that I can see the fruit of my labor. And a lot of these organizations are great. And I, I don't, uh, trust me, I'm not saying not to support these events, but you know, as a chef for me, I want to see the fruit of my labor. I want to be able to see the tangible uh, outcome and uh, of my work. And that's what, you know, with the chef radio podcast, you know, it's, it's really about making sure that chefs have that chance to talk about it, you know, what they're doing, you know, Mark Vetri is a great example of that. Uh, we just had him on last week, the latest episode, and he talks about you know what he does with his um, Vetri Community Foundation, um, which you know has raised hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to help numerous causes and educating communities and setting up stands at at farmers markets to teach and inspire people to use the vegetables and cook uh, in more healthy and and uh, effective ways. Yeah. So segueing into that, I mean, then we'll wrap up soon. You launched your own podcast, as you mentioned, the Chef Radio podcast. Um, Chef stands for cooking, hospitality, environment, and food. Everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so what has, what is doing this podcast meant to you? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a few things, right? Um, as somebody who I'm not in the kitchen as much, you know, it was really a way for me to connect with people still and connect with chefs and people in the community that uh, have some impact on what's going on. The, you know, the acronym chef, um, you know, cooking, like that's what we do, right? We're going to talk about food. We're going to talk about cooking. We're going to talk about um, the techniques that we do and, you know, the successes and the failures and, you know, hospitality for the H is, you know, exactly that. You know, I don't want it to be just chefs. I want it to be hospitality professionals, you know, outside of that, you know, makers, producers, stuff like that. You know, environment is a big one. Like we need to be really start thinking more about the environment. I mean, just the, you know, the, the fact that we use plastic and, uh, you know, containers and to go and like those type of things, like, what are we doing? What are we, what are we doing as a, as a collective group and making sure we're supporting the right kind of agriculture? You know, we can't, we're in the Northeast. We're not going to have fresh, fresh vegetables and fruit all year round. But in those winter months, are you making sure that you're doing the research to make sure that you're not supporting agriculture that is having a negative impact on the environment? And what I mean by that is the growing practices. You know, the are they doing regenerative agriculture? 
Are they doing organic agriculture? Are they taking care of the soil rather than raping the soil of all its nutrients and then using purchased uh, uh, inputs like nitrogen and fertilizer to essentially put back some level of, of nutrition so that the plant can grow and then essentially killing off the soil again. And, you know, it's, I've plugged this multiple times. If you haven't watched uh, Kiss the Ground yet, you have to watch it. It's, it's such a, um, it's on Netflix. It's such an amazing view into what we have to do. Right here in Pennsylvania, we have the Rodale Institute, which uh, really was the founding, really laid out the founding principles for organic and what that meant in America. And it's a research um, uh, facility that is all about farming and how to improve farming techniques. Um, we have some really great organic farms all around the area here. And, you know, I get it. You know, people need lemons, people need limes throughout the year. Nobody's going to live without those things. Uh, but making sure that, you know, chefs were educating ourselves and making sure that we are doing everything we can uh, to empower these, these other farmers uh, locally to continue to uh, ensure that they're not uh, destroying uh, the soil uh, that we have, because uh, at the end of the day, if we don't have quality soil all around the globe, uh, we don't have um, nutritious food. And I think nutrition and you know being able to find uh, vegetables and produce and meat that are that are raised the right way um, has to be at the forefront. And I think what we're seeing is you know every year, every growing season that we have, you know, more chefs are being more knowledgeable with what they have. The um, UN says that we have about 60 years of soil left on the planet if we don't change our growing practices. I'm not talking about, you know, the small farm in South Jersey. You know, I'm talking about big agriculture. That's 60 harvests. You know, that's, that's, that's what they say is left on the planet. Um, and, you know, we're not talking about just America and the Western civilization. We're talking about, you know, all over the globe, you know, whether that's in Africa or Asia, you know, all that. So, you know, I've been, I've been getting more involved with um, a, a group called the Chef's uh, Manifesto and they're out of uh, England, but they're uh, involved with the UN and their, and their um, sustainable uh, development goals. So if anybody's interested in that, they can look up uh, Chef's Manifesto. You know, it lays out some really great sort of groundwork or kind of bullet points that chefs can look at and say, am I doing these things? Am I, am I really able to say that, you know, I'm reducing, you know, the waste in, uh, in my restaurant, whether it's plastic or food waste, you know, composting, you know, working with local farms uh, and, you know, a vegetable focused menu or vegetable forward menu or, you know, reducing the amount of protein on the plate, uh, animal protein and, and uh, you know, adding a little bit more vegetable to the plate so that we're, you know, considering, you know, the energy that goes into, you know, every animal. That Chef's Manifesto, I was actually just learning about them a little bit the other day, and they also have a podcast, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, Chef Tom Hunt. Yeah, he does it. He's a really uh, smart guy and fun to talk to. I had him on the Chef Radio podcast, and you know, he's, 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 um, he's doing it, man. He is uh, That's a major he's a, catching up to do uh, with your podcast. Gosh. <laughs> Well, the, the so anxiety many, of so uh, you know, getting into a good podcast. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> there's so many out there. You just like you're like, what do I choose? How do I spend my time? Which one do I choose? You know, totally. Yeah, awesome. Let's do a little speed round really quick, and then uh, we'll wrap it up. First question: What did you have for dinner last night? Well, you know what? I didn't really have dinner last night. I had some wine. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I watched the election. Uh, we had a, I had some cheese. That's what I had. Wine and cheese. I had a big bowl of chili for lunch, and that was enough to get me through. Um, I was going to order ramen from uh, Pete Serpico's place. Uh, he has a uh, it's called Pete's Place here in Philadelphia. It's it's a pop up within his own restaurant. Like you know, people are doing these little uh, one offs, and he's doing all these Korean ramen that I really wanted, but I ate that chili the day, and it kind of ruined my. I was like, I can't do ramen on top of chili. It's just too right. <laughs> That's funny. Name a smell in the kitchen you love. Roasting, uh, not roasting garlic, but frying garlic in the oil. Just allowing that garlic to slowly permeate the oil and that, you know, getting it to that point where it's like golden brown and that heat is just perfectly balanced. Um, yeah. Maybe throw some butter in there and some thyme and start roasting a piece of fish with it. Oh my God. How about a smell in the kitchen you hate? 
burnt garlic is such a fine line, such a fine line between perfectly uh, fried garlic and and uh, you know. So what I've been doing lately is frying the garlic, right? I will listen uh, just like a fine mince or sliced, and then pulling the garlic out. So you got the flavor in the oil, right? And you, you got to have enough, you know, olive oil or whatever oil you're using. And then just taking them out, putting them on a paper towel, and then um, crunching them up and putting them as a topping. It, you still get the flavor of the garlic in the dish. You know, let's say you're doing some greens, right? And you're you want to fry that garlic perfectly. And you know, I always say put a tilt the pan uh, and put a little spoon or something underneath the um, the front of the pan so that all the oil kind of sits in, in the back of the pan near the handle and to allow it to fry. And it's a great little like texture. I'm big on texture. So anytime I can get texture in my food is, is important. Sure, sure. Um, what pisses you off in the kitchen? A lax, lackadaisical attitude or just not being clean. It's, one, it's a toss up between those two. Yeah, you know, you it makes you happy. Happy? Happy in the kitchen, yeah. Service. Yeah. Service, the intensity of service. Uh, it can, it can go both ways, but at the end of the day, it's, it's something, that's the one thing I miss the most out of, out of probably everything that I, that I can, could do as an able-bodied person. I, I miss going through service the most and sitting on the expo pass and just the intensity of, and just being, you know, you're, you have to be on point. You have to be on fire. You got, you know, you got, you know, 30 tickets on the board and you're, you're calling out to your team. Your team's depending on you for that information and just keeping it straight and keeping it flowing. There's nothing more rewarding than a good, strong service that you got through with your team. Yeah, for sure. What actor would you want to play Chef Eli Culp? No, man. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I don't even know that many actors. I mean, other than like, you know, the obvious ones. So I'll say Brad Picks. He's just really good looking. He'd make me look good. There you go. <laughs> I actually like him as an actor. He's actually he's actually a good actor. Yeah, for sure. All right. So you have a son. How old's your son now? Uh, he'll be nine in February. So almost nine. You have an eight-year-old son. What pieces of advice would you or do you give to him when it comes to living life or giving back? Uh, respect and kindness. You know, that's something I tell him all the time. You know, it's about respecting everything from from other people to you know, the planet, you know, all these things, having respect for, you know, what we do here on the, uh, you know, throughout our lives, just kindness to other people. I think that's one thing that, you know, we, we lack a lot of times and, you know, the, um, we're quick to, you know, I find myself quick to judge sometimes, whether it's, you know, who you, who you're voting for or what's going on in our country. Um, but respecting kindness is always something that, you know, I remind him of constantly. All right, dude. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Um, yeah, it was fun. You, my pleasure. It was fun. I mean, I, I've I've loved your food forever. I love seeing you in the like when I would see you in the restaurant. Your passion for highlighting ingredients and food and a farmer, whether it's a grain or another piece of produce or something like that, it was kind of infectious at the time. And then you know, now getting to know you more through your podcast, that that's shining through your podcast as you highlight oh, these thank people you for on there and giving them a voice. It's awesome. And, and I loved in some of your episodes, you talk about your willingness and wanting to do more mentorship and leadership now, which you're incredibly inspirational. Truthfully, uh, you speak very well to that. I think you're, I think you, you changed a lot for the food world in the past 10 years. And I think um, obviously due to circumstances, uh, you're going to continue to make a difference you know, whether it's directly in a kitchen or for someone else uh, outside of the kitchen, um, it, it, it's going to be incredible to yeah, see. Yeah, you, so. you, you can never, you, you can't predict what's going to happen to you, but you can always control how you react to it. And, you know, I think that's it's an important lesson that, you know, if I tell people, if you get through this life unscathed through, you know, no tragedy, whether it's your, your, your close family or uh, disease or, you know, you're, you're very lucky. So you got to be prepared you know, mentally, like, you know, things are going to go wrong in your life. And those moments, you know, really staying grounded and keeping that perspective uh, is something that I learned along the journey. Yeah. Amazing. A big thank you again to Chef Eli Culp. Find more on him on social at Eli Culp. To learn more about the Rodale Institute, check out rodaleinstitute.org. And if you want to find more on the Chef's Manifesto, 
Just Google Chef's Manifesto. That link's a little longer, but if you put in Chef's Manifesto on Google, it'll come up. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Kathy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on all the socials at BT Plate Podcast. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yetton, and Sean Petrosian. Thank you to Sarah McClellan and me for her digital media savviness. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. As always, a special shout out to my wife, Katie. Please rate, review, and or subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. And join us this Friday for our third episode of Beyond the Drink, a little companion podcast, if you will. We'll be talking with a couple talented mixologists out of Miami this week. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.